Welcome back to this week's episode of Let's Chat Ethics. I'm your co-host, Ariana. And I'm your other co-host, Amanda. So this week, we're really excited to have been joined by Victoria Vasilova, who is a sales director at Arthur. And in her role at Arthur, she works to help complex organizations bring operational maturity and responsible and trustworthy practices to AI and ML initiatives across industries. And at Arthur, she focuses primarily on partnering with F100 enterprises to bring comprehensive performance management and proactive risk reduction and mitigation across their entire AI production stack. Victoria is deeply motivated by the opportunity to shift industry practices to a front-end ethics approach to place equity and fairness considerations at the forefront of machine learning and automating projects. And as you'll hear in this episode, Victoria talks about her experience of working at Arthur, what Arthur specifically do as a company, how they're working a lot of the how they're currently working on a lot of the responsible AI challenges, and of course, talking about large language models such as ChatGPT, what Arthur's currently doing and how they're working with clients and what kind of challenges they're seeing and how they're looking to overcome these risks within uh, the space right now. So we hope you enjoy today's episode. All right, well, thank you so much for joining us today, Victoria. It's amazing to have you finally on. I know we've been trying to organise this for a few months, but things have been a bit crazy in the responsible AI, generative AI space. So yeah, maybe it'll be great to hear a bit about yourself, um, maybe what responsible AI means to you and the work that you're currently doing. And then I guess you can get into more about your role at Arthur as well. That'd be amazing. Yeah, absolutely. It's great to be here. Thank you for um, inviting me and hosting me today. Um, so my name is Victoria Vasilova. I'm currently one of the um, sales directors here at Arthur. I've been here about three years, but my uh, journey way back when actually I did go to school for math and started my career as a data analyst, not a data scientist. This was uh, long, long enough ago that that still was sort of developing the way it is still is now. Um, but I ended up, as I say, falling out of distribution and moving my way over to um, more of the external kind of customer facing business side of things. Um, as I really, really enjoyed the intersection of sort of uh, taking insights from data and translating them into what they mean sort of in the real world. And I was fortunate enough to work across different industries and sort of saw in real time how it could impact everything from state policies across education and so on and so forth into, um, you know, more industry fields like advertising and so on. Um, I left uh, past roles having kind of cut my teeth on seeing some of this impact, good and bad, in certain spaces and found my way to Arthur looking for a company who very publicly and intentionally wanted to root themselves in sort of the mission space, but more specifically um, in, you know, responsible, good tech for, uh, you know, its given context. And Arthur works in the machine learning space. and. Um, I was very drawn to that because having, you know, once upon a time been a data analyst and worked at uh, companies who had machine learning teams, um, saw really that, you know, what machine learning is really, really good at is sort of um, kind of analysis on steroids, right? So you have scale at at, at automation. And so the um, potential is great, but so is the risk. Um, And so I've been here about three years working with clients predominantly but not exclusively in the regulated industry space, so very sensitive use cases with a lot of um, legislation around them, compelling them to do certain things, and watching kind of how that has uh, influenced non-regulated spaces as well as we've all kind of raised the awareness around um, issues, right, that come with uh, proper kind of machine learning management and responsible AI and what that means from, you know, practice and principle and sort of how you implement it 
Um, so I've been, I've been very lucky to get a preview into, you know, how banks are doing it, but also how media companies are doing it and how tech companies are doing computer vision, you know, you name it, um, we've, we've gotten a preview of it. So it's very, it's very exciting, very interesting. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's really cool. I think this, uh, it's a developing, uh, unique space. Um, I know that there's a lot of, uh, I mean, I feel like in the last few years anyway, there's been a lot of, I guess, startups or companies now that are, um, focusing on these challenges of responsible AI or maybe from the consulting side, the ML ops governance side. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you say that in the work you do, Arthur, kind of um, you've seen as some of the challenges when you're trying to maybe approach organisations or them approaching you? What would you say the biggest challenges are in adopting, I guess, governance or um, responsible AI as a whole? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Um, so in the regulated spaces like financial institutions and healthcare, there's a bit more um, maturity around their model risk management practices. So these kind of practices already exist. Um, they certainly need to be updated for modern technology. And there's a lot of work happening we've seen um, across enterprises today where they're trying to modernize their tech stack. And that's a piece of it, too. So sometimes implementing governance is an engineering or technical challenge, right? You have to um, begin to have these agnostic tools that can sit over everything and you probably have a very mixed stack teams that work on different things um, and even sort of under existing um, security and permissions controls, right? So some teams have access to some data, some models, not all. How do you begin to put this under one umbrella and report on it in a very sophisticated fashion? Um, It's no easy feat. So getting, um, you know, one one of the largest kind of buckets of challenges, I would say, is people management. Uh, or or change management, rather. Uh, You have to kind of educate a lot across the way why you want to do certain things, because some of it will produce kind of manual tasks that folks have to do. Um, A few years back, right, we saw researchers out of Google um, kind of invent the notion of model cards, right? We've seen this adopted in various forms across um, clients that we work with. Uh, but pieces of that involve model owners and developers um, writing why they chose a given data set, what are the potential risks, et cetera, right? That's not something you can automate away ever, really. Um, pieces of it, but like at the end of the day, a person will have to do that. Um, and there's, you know, where there's people, there's problems. And so some people are more resistant to sort of doing certain things. Um, but there's also a very real um, kind of brand and reputation risk that comes out, um, sometimes very explicitly. Sometimes you kind of read it between the lines because there's this notion of, if I am looking for problems, right, then, and, and I find one, I have to document it. And if I document, I have to do something about it. And doing something about it could involve a dollar cost, it could involve human cost. But even along that way, if it's documented, right, might it leak and make the headlines? And I'm very terrified of that. So we often ask in our sales processes and understanding why someone kind of cares about, um, you know, fairness monitoring or even just like responsible AI, you know, practices in general, we say like, you know, what keeps you up at night? And very, very often the answer is, I don't want to be interviewed by Congress. I don't want a federal inquiry. I don't want my name in the paper. Like it's literally that. It's not like, oh, we could be wrong. It's like, absolutely. But like, I don't want to be famous for bad things is like the thing that keeps people up at night. And we're talking like VPs, EDs, MDs, like very senior people at some of the largest F50 companies saying this. So um, I think it underscores, right? Like sort of what their position is and the things they have to worry about. Um, so I would say, you know, that like I've definitely, we've, we've changed our language. Arthur never has been in the business of fear mongering because it really is like, there are no truly bad actors that I've encountered. It's like generally um, kind of textbook lack of 
knowledge or deep expertise in certain fields, right? And so as concepts around explainability or even fairness outside of very straightforward like binary classification tasks or something like that, right? It's much more nebulous. And so folks really don't know what to do sometimes and they're looking for guidance. Um, but where there is uncertainty, right, there's risk aversion. And so I think that as a community, broadly speaking, um, we try to do our part to not fear monger and sort of just inform along the way and give tools to sort of, okay, this is how you might start. What might the journey look like? It's not like an overnight tech solutionism thing where it's like, oh, you know, we never want to be in the business of as long as you're using Arthur, your stuff is good. Like this is a USDA organic label, like you're fine. It's like absolutely not, right? Because there can be bad applications. There's so many things upstream and downstream. Um, it's more like, do you have the tools to start measuring along the way, benchmarking, reporting, and getting an understanding of what's happening in your system, and then figuring out how do you want to make it better and where? I think that's um, it's very interesting. It makes me think of, um, it's probably three or four years ago, maybe even longer, because with the pandemic, I feel like time has become really elastic. And when I think it's last <laughs> year, and then I'm actually like, that, that was four years ago. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, but if you remember, there was that, um, there were a lot of articles about it that Amazon had uh, some kind of job recommendation algorithm or like some CV filtering that turned out to be um, extremely sexist and um, that actually it was Amazon that even made that information available. Like they they were the ones who contacted the press to talk about it as a... Um, kind of a badge of honor that look we actually looked into our algorithm and we scrapped it because we realized that um, it was not fair for example um, and so I wonder if um, in some way maybe other companies could be encouraged to have a similar take on things that okay we might find because all of this stuff is relatively new and the ways that, like you said, there's a lot of uncertainty right like I think our data practices are changing and um, even though GDPR is from like 2019, again, the last three years have just sort of <laughs> disappeared into the ether, um, that I think we're all learning how to source data legally or ethically and what are the boundaries of that. What Again, yeah, it's, I think it's easy to think of fairness and the, the binary of uh, gender, but... Um, actually going beyond that is difficult. So I wonder if, um, I don't know, if, if you think maybe that other businesses could be incentivized to look at it from this perspective that it's like probably em anybody who's doing machine learning can find some issues with their thing, but like it's good that you're actually looking for problems. It, it says something about you that you're looking to improve, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do think there's room for that. I think there's two things that are contributing nicely to that, at least from my point of view. And one is, you're exactly right. I love that there's a lot of focus on the data piece of the um, life cycle, right? Because um, that's where if you're even just like within the fairness circles, right, you kind of talk about it like it starts with the data, whether there's like underrepresentation of certain groups in the data or how you sourced it or was it properly labeled. And there's a lot of human components along the way in this. Um, but I think it also, with that, increases our awareness of things like proxy variables, right? Which is like forever going to be a hunt. Um, some of them are very well known today and in certain spaces like financial institutions, right? They cannot use zip code here in the U.S. because the U.S. has a long history of uh, redlining, right? Which very put race groups inside of nice little boxes. And so today it's like you don't you know, want to use that because it's as good as using a number of other demographic data. Uh, but I agree that that's one thing that's um, elevating sort of the awareness around 
all the way from the beginning, what are potential things that can trickle down the life cycle? Um, I also think that, you know, in my three years at Arthur, I've already seen, like at the beginning, it was a lot of um, fear to go looking for anything at all. But today, as we've normalized, right, like setting the baseline that every machine learning model, right, there's that famous line, um, all machine learning models are wrong, but some are useful, right? So it's like, if you just accept that there's going to be some issues, um, and we can reduce people's fear of that, then it's about, okay, cool, great. We know it's, it's there. We should just go looking for it. I think the other thing I've noticed a more trend is because for better or for worse, but mostly for better, right? This notion of, um, being a good agent in the space, like operating under responsibility principles is a nice brand association that everyone wants to be seen as, right? Nobody wants to be out there saying, okay, we're just have everything in a black box and like it works the way it works and whatever and, you know, move fast and break things. I think Amazon was in, um, not a unique, but in a pretty interesting position to be able to do that, right? Because they're not a bank. They're not a healthcare company. Um, hiring is very regulated, sure, but they could say if we come out, you know, like it's not, if we say it first, then like we can't get in trouble, um, from someone else externally. And I do think that they, um, you know, to be seen as leaders in the space, it was probably very strategic, right? To sort of signal to the rest of the market, hey, right, we got this wrong. Here's what we learned from it. We're out here talking about it. And then it, it, it will make it easier for the next person to do that. The second thing is because responsible AI specifically in, in, in the AI space has, um, you know, become such um, a movement, let's say, um, I think it's had a lot of companies either adopt those principles and even adjust or see how they align into their brand values. Because outside of the regulated space where the law compels you to do some of these checks, it really boils down to like, what is a company's culture? What are a company's values? What is the brand that they're putting out of? Because that's the only other check that I've seen really encourage any given group um, to do anything more sophisticated than just, I'm checking my model for drift and you know accuracy. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that that all makes sense. I think like you were saying, it being um, a movement as well with responsible AI. I think that everyone is wanting that brand association and looking internally about um, the leaders they have in the company, like how um, how people can kind of follow that and what kind of internal checks they can do. Um, I guess the hot topic on everyone's <laughs> everyone's mouth and everyone's minds at the moment is generative AI, chat GPT, um, large language models. Obviously, we can't not talk about that. I feel like that's something that everyone wants to hear about. What, what are, or I guess what, how is Arthur approaching it if you, if you are able to speak about that? And um, what, again, are the challenges you're seeing with, with that? And um, I think if we even think about how the regulators are trying to uh, approach large language models, it seems to be, um, everyone doesn't seem to be completely clear with what's happening. So it's just, I'm just wondering what kind of, I guess, questions you're getting from customers and how um, how you're looking to, to overcome the certain challenges with that and how you see it moving forward, basically. Absolutely, absolutely, yes. I spend these days all day, every day, talking about generative AI. Um, <laughs> seemingly overnight has become a C-suite initiative um, at the largest enterprises, including the most risk-averse regulated ones. So all of our banking customers, our healthcare customers as well. And then we're seeing uh, it's really greenfield in terms of the types of organizations. It's small, large, um, across all kinds of use cases, all kinds of industries. And so in that sense, it's really remarkable, right, this time to see just how this like relatively accessible tool um, on, you know, like a, 
layman civilian level has you know already changed how people go through their days um but organizations are looking to take advantage of this really one of the biggest advantages they see is is productivity so um, whether it's kind of internally or externally to their customers or users um, that's what they want to take advantage of because it's imagine you have you know any enterprise or any company rather um, has a lot of information right imagine you could uh, feed that into a model and be able to sort of query against it um, to answer questions extremely quickly, right? As opposed to having someone have to go search or something like that. Um, summarize my notes, um, you know, tell me what's the most important thing or hey, in this given data set, you know, like what's the average number of something or something like that and just kind of to get real answers at your fingertips. Um, from Arthur's perspective, we're really thinking about it um, at three Layer. So there's the development layer where you know, you're know you getting started with generative AI, you have uh, GPT-3, 3.5, 4 as an option, there's the Anthropic Coheres, the Mosaics, um, you know, open source solutions, which one do you choose, right? Which one's better for you? Well, you have to test and evaluate. Um, so we've open sourced um, what we call Arthur Bench in that space um, to basically help you with that where, okay, for a given prompt, um, how is it performing, right? And so we've got customers who have a variety of models underneath their products, and that's exactly what they're doing. Because they're like, maybe for this particular product capability, uh, GPT 3.5 was better, but you know, in a year from now, we're, we're going to be talking about GPT 7, right? And so along the way, as these changes come downstream, what changes? Is it better? Is it worse? Um, which one is it actually good for? And how do you decide that? Then say you've performed some tests and you're ready to go live into production with maybe one or a couple, you do that, what you want to do, so that's kind of like your first line of defense, right? It's like you don't want to go live with a model that doesn't work as well for you. Um, then you're live. What you want to do is be able to protect yourself against um, some of the obvious biggest concerns around, okay, can I catch preemptively before... Um, it gets served to anybody, uh, PII or other sensitive data, or can I catch, you know, toxic, offensive or problematic language? Can I detect hallucinations, right? This is a big one with a lot of conversation happening because it's quite difficult. Uh, there are some researchers, there's a, there was a headline, I believe just last week um, in Washington Post that some researchers don't even think it's going to be possible to catch all hallucinations, uh, maybe ever, right, to sort of detect it um, extremely robustly but along the way there are certainly ways you can do certain checks so how do you at least you know put in some some guardrails around that in addition in addition right things like malicious prompts um, in certain spaces this is going to be key because if it if it is someone you know who's a bad actor bad actor internally um, you're going to want to be able to find out like what are these prompts uh, but also like who is it right um, and then you know prompt ejection and things like that so uh, those are that's what we call Arthur Shield. So that's kind of the Arthur um, firewall for LLMs. Um, this is what we've seen the largest um, interest around because, in for example, the regulated spaces as we've been talking about, you've probably seen the headlines where you know most of Wall Street has a crackdown and said you cannot use this right until we figure out how to do it with guardrails. Like they're they're the furthest from the position to be able to just like see right <laughs> kind of like open AI. It's like well here here you go world go play with it and let's find out some problems in real time and just kind of patch. They can't do that, right? Regulators would never allow it. And frankly, they have some really, really, really sensitive information, right? Um, that's either IP kind of trade secrets or like my personal financial information and social security number and so on and so forth, right? That like they cannot unleash kind of willy nilly into the world. Um, and so this is kind of that level of guardrails. And then finally, how do you bring all this into a, a monitoring platform, whether it's Arthur or something else, right? To kind of begin to optimize. So it, uh, it's very common practice today that these organizations will um, incorporate some sort of 
human feedback along the way, right? Even if you're kind of playing around with ChatGPT, there's at least a thumbs up, thumbs down, and if it was good or not. Most products that are live today with these capabilities have a little bit more sophisticated um, kind of you know feedback kind of input. But the idea is how do you bring all of this together um, and create you know a life cycle view of how things are going and where the problems are and how you start patching for those. So um, that's that's the space that we're in. We're doing active research in the more nebulous spaces around hallucinations. Um, but today we are detecting uh, PII sensitive data toxicity um, and malicious prompts uh, for for a hand, handful of customers and going live with more every week. That's really cool. I think the like of course because I work in this space, the hallucinations is a like an important thing that yeah everybody's kind of talking about because yeah they're so hard to detect and I think the model doesn't even give you some indication that it's not sure about this um i remember there was that headline last week about some lawyer that used ChatGPT to write a motion and then also yes. used ChatGPT to check that it hadn't hallucinated yes. <laughs> and yes. then of course yes. um, it had completely hallucinated the whole thing and it's it's so interesting because yeah the models like they don't know what they don't know and uh, like i've been working in this area for my god almost 10 years <laughs> um and i remember like the early on generative models that one of the big problems was that they always said they didn't know <laughs> uh, because that's just a good reasonable answer to almost anything anybody can say is i don't know um and the fact that now we can't get them to say i don't know <laughs> when they don't know it's uh, I don't know, it always makes me laugh i think it, we've got like completely off to the to the opposite side and it's yeah, I'm very interested in how this is going to go, and maybe I should uh, consider doing some research in this area myself now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's also, you know, specific to hallucinations, there's two things that are wrapped up for me. Um, well, the big one is like that we call it hallucinations, right? Because there's this like uh, conversation around, you know, anthropomorphizing these things, and like, why do we call it hallucination instead of just like incorrect output or error, right? Because it's like, there is something to be said for how we're sort of training people through it, their interactions with it, um, you, you and me included, right? If we play with it and like it, there's um, really great papers and articles out there kind of talking about how it's a design choice to, um, you know, for ChatGPT to return words like one at a time as if, as if it's writing or thinking as opposed to just like a text block, which is like how it actually would put things out. Um, and so hallucinations to me is like a little existential, um, but yeah, I think, I think it's worth doing some research, Amanda, if you've got the time and the bandwidth, absolutely. Because in some, in some places, like to give you a real example, um, it's a little bit more straightforward, right? Like for, we have one customer who, um, they, they have a product and they have a bunch of product manuals. And so they have sent this to the model. And when you ask a question to sort of say, okay, is this capability or feature or something rightly possible? Um, it'll actually, with augmented retrieval, send you back, okay, here's like three pages in the manuals that um, speak to this. And so then a human would say, okay, yep, you know, there's good. You actually, it's like you're having to source, right? Because normally now if you ask, um, you know, ChatGPT, the public version, um, a question on like, tell me about insects or something. And it does. And you're like, great, what are your sources? And it's like, well, I pull from a variety of sources. Well, what are these sources? And it doesn't, it cannot like cite papers. And when it does, right, we've often found that it will just invent citations. Um, another customer does... Uh, 
code to or uh, text to SQL generation, right? And so like you don't want to generate a SQL code for a column in a table that doesn't exist. That's a more straightforward check. You can say, okay, this is referencing literally a column that doesn't exist. That's kind of easier to catch. But if you ask more, uh, you know, broader questions or in certain use cases, um, our approach right now is to, to, you know, we have some beta customers and to you to see, because it's so context specific. That's the other challenge in this space. It's like for a given domain for a given task, the kinds of, you know, these things are going to look different um, and how they manifest is going to be different. And so how you build something that guardrails around that is, is going to be an iterative thing for a while because these things are very new. We have to remind ourselves very new. <laughs> yeah, I think um, it's so interesting what you were saying about the anthropomorphism. So I actually published a paper on anthropomorphism a few weeks ago. Oh, um, wow. So maybe there's a non-zero chance you have seen it and you may be actually talking about my paper maybe. Uh, because it was um, making some waves on, on Twitter like a couple of weeks ago. So maybe. Oh yeah, I'll go look at um, And I think it's, yeah, it's such an interesting area. So we like in the paper, we're talking about all the factors of anthropomorphism in, in dialogue systems. Um, and yeah, we talk about the... Um, like even when you're when ChatGPT is typing, quote unquote, then it displays the like dot 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 like like it's thinking like mm -hmm. <laughs> maybe just the same that uh, our text messages do. And then I saw this um, paper that is even suggesting that we should actually grant personhood to uh, large language models, <laughs> which I thought was just absolutely insane and ridiculous and I thought wow we really have gone really over the top with the anthropomorphism of these systems because yeah I mean like in the I think in the paper we focus more on the actual like the way the systems themselves are anthropomorphic or like sort of pretend to be human um, but there's also yeah like you pointed out the whole issue of the language that we use to describe these um, these, these systems like um not long ago, I was listening to um, this video on YouTube about whether um, large language models are sentient. And this person that was speaking, I usually think of them as being very in, like intelligent, having good points. But they said that, well, it's a really large neural network and my really large neural network is sentient. So how could we say that they're not? It's like, oh, but... Actually, neural network is just not really a good, like, yeah, it implies so many things. <laughs> so that, many things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is a problem now, I think. There's every everything in the news now is being really, really hyped into the, into the, into the sense of large language models or ChatGPT being sentient. And it, actually in the UK, we had um, a big podcaster he put out an episode with someone from an ex-Google person who's basically said that, yes, um, AI is sentient and that essentially, like, we're heading for doom, you know, the world's heading for an emergency, this is bigger than climate change, et cetera, et cetera. But I think uh, conversations like this, are, I think, are quite irresponsible to audiences that don't necessarily work in this space. So I was wondering, like, what, maybe what are your thoughts specifically on on this kind of Duma climate that we're seeing in the in the in the media now um it, it's kind of to me it's kind of taking away from the real today issues with responsible AI so I was just wondering yeah what your thoughts are on on, on that I point. agree with that completely I think the same thing I think I think it's irresponsible is the word I would use I also think um 
you know, even just to take the onus a little bit away from the person, the people out there saying that, um, it's, it's just, it's not as informed, right? And I think the field, like we've talked about it sometimes in the space, but I think generative AI no less requires an interdisciplinary look, right? So like, how can you talk about sentience? Like it's, there's other people who kind of study this for a living, but also just, um, you know, our own, our own views on like what, what that means. I think we shouldn't ever, I personally think that like we'll never achieve sentience with, with models is like my personal position on that. I don't think we should talk about it that way. Um, but I agree with you in terms of the public discourse around it. Um, it's, it's unfair because I think like at, a, at the highest zoomed out level, there's already, um, people don't find like AI and machine learning very approachable, right? And they were talking about like the majority of the public. Like generally speaking, it's actually a tiny field run by like a few powerful people and sort of like tech, highly technical people. Um, we've done some work and there's products out there trying to like democratize access to AI. Like, you know, I've heard people describe that as like, you know, handing chainsaws to children, you know, it's like good and bad kind of things. But my point though is like, it's not a very approachable space. And I think conversations like that make it even less approachable. Meanwhile, though, all of our lives are being affected every single day by a number of models, like from when we wake up to when we go to bed. And so it's really kind of unfair to say, well, um, you know, there's this doom coming and like, what do you do about it? You have no idea, right? You kind of feel powerless, but nonetheless, models stay making decisions for you and determining your life all the time. Um, and so I think it creates more of a divide. I also think, um, yeah, the, 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 it goes back to the first point of like, it's not really fair to say that statement because it comes from such a narrow point of view, right? Um, we have to continue to broaden the conversation and ask other people in different disciplines to kind of, um, join the process and sort of, you know, give their, their perspective. I don't think we can have even the brightest computer scientists talking about sentience. Yeah, I always, that whenever I hear that argument, that always makes me like, yeah, I think irresponsible is exactly the right word that really distracts from the real issues. And like, I don't know why everybody assumes that like AI is going to be the Terminator, where actually the, yeah, it's the algorithms that are making decisions that we have to worry about is the things like maybe like Cambridge Analytica from a while ago, but I, these things are still happening. Those are the real like doom and gloom of even the exactly. like super addictive social media algorithms. That's exactly. the sort of thing exactly. that are truly concerning. And even, yeah, like even when you think of um, the, the true problems are probably things like cyber security and those kind of those problems that are real threats now where you have people trying to hack and get into certain systems there's there's lots of problems we're facing right now that we're that i think this whole futuristic like you said the uh, the robots and <laughs> taking over the world and terminator but it's it's interesting a lot of people do now see that and i think like you were saying victoria there is a there's a section there's like a divide now where there's a section of people who if you don't work in this space and you hear that like you why wouldn't you believe that? If you're reading the BBC News and you hear someone who's super intelligent, who's computer scientist background, who works at Google, who's worked at all the top companies telling you we're all going to die and robots are going to kill us, you're obviously going to freak out. So I think it's... it's And obviously the media full flame this fire mm-hmm. so much. <laughs> and it's, it's just unfortunate because I think there's a lot of issues that we should be talking about right now that like you said, these decisions do impact our everyday life. Absolutely. It really minimizes what you've both said, right? Like that there are real harms already. And and it's not that we have to feel 
doomed about them, but it's like there's the harm is already happening, right? Um, it's just perpetuating. Like models are just good at finding existing patterns and then you know automating them at scale. Um, I think that today, you know, there's a lot of um, research happening to sort of understand what it's propagated, like existing systems, right? Like if you just look at any time slice, like who was given credit, who was allocated care, who was xyz thing it's it's more of the same often there's been some improvements but it's like you know we really need to be taking a look at just current applications not these futuristic robot ones so yeah i would agree we shouldn't take away from that conversation i think those kinds of statements try to detract yeah and i think it's very interesting that it and it seems to me like the advances with like these large language models like ChatGPT and stuff are kind of really adding fuel to the fire because i think we've you know, even last year or two years ago, if anybody was saying like this gloom, doom, world's end Terminator version of AI, we were all a bit like, no, you're, you're crazy, right? But then these like large language models came out. And I think, again, we go back to anthropomorphism to some, in some way that because they're using human language and there was a Google one that was saying like, no, I'm afraid of dying and blah, 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 that it's so easy because they use such a... It's so much more relatable, I guess, quote unquote, because they're using language than um, if it's, I don't know, um, some kind of just classifier model of this thing gets allocated. You know, it's much easier to ascribe intelligence to to this thing, especially the language models now are so good, actually, at faking language that it's, you know, they're basically native speakers of like 50 plus languages. We don't even know how many languages ChatGPT knows, right? Um, or GPT-4 stuff. Um, and it's it's such a shame because I think then people, like it's so hard to explain to people that all these things are doing is faking language, basically. Just, again, just automate, automatizing the process of, of language and truly nothing else. And then people start talking about these like emergent properties and all of that when we kind of know to some extent that if you get the whole internet's worth of data, that's where like a bunch of task data is. So yes, actually, it's not an emergent property. The data for this task is actually in there. Um, but it's really hard to explain this to um, lay people who don't really truly understand this. And then it's got all the layers of adding the anthropomorphic language about the systems and yeah, the other mm-hmm. like hallucinations, the... Like catastrophic forgetting was my favorite one. <laughs> definitely, yeah. definitely. Yeah, it's interesting. Like every time I hear, I mean, because it is it is the case, you know, like these models are trained essentially on internet data. Like if that doesn't already kind of like make you afraid, right? <laughs> because it's like it's this is the internet. But even and then then you have like it opens doors around like um, copyright, right, and ownership and. Um, there's a lot of, you know, one of the most recent models, right, they were saying it was like a lot of um, news websites and other people's like reports and things. And it's like that goes into training and it really muddies the waters and like who's, you know, ownership. Like I guess like the in the in the art space, right, like that's where really the conversation is mostly happening. But it really, um, these are important questions we need to reckon with too because it's like whose data is it and how does that, um, you know, impact any given field, right? And I think I saw this morning that Japan has decided that AI training is fair game and, and it doesn't count, it's not a copyright um, uh, infraction, right, to do it. And so you're like, so, yeah, some people are just going full steam ahead on 
any data you find, it doesn't matter, right? Um, and we grew up in an age, right, where it's like the Facebooks and Instagrams and Snap and TikTok, et cetera, like this content is just out there. Um, we probably couldn't have imagined or can't imagine some of the ways it's going to be used, right? Um, so yeah, it's very, it's very concerning. And, and I'm glad you brought up, like you said, you know, human language and there are other languages involved, but like still truly like it's the best at English, right? And if like we kind of think about from a global perspective, what this is going to do to like further increase inequalities or, you know, certain assets, like both where resources are going, but even just sort of like the benefit of these things, right? Are we, are we truly improving broadly or not? And I think we should always be, um, you know, keeping that onus on, like, we can't just improve for a very narrow set of people or use cases, you know? Yeah. And I think also that only speaks a very, like one very particular variety of English. Like it's really hard to get um, ChatGPT to write in even something like British slang, right? Like I think it's really very sort of standard American. Um, and eh. But I think it's really interesting about the data. I just have one comment that we can. <laughs> I was giving a lecture to my students at the NLP class, and I remember that I brought it up with them that OpenAI has, at the end of the day, scraped the internet for your data that you have produced, and now they're charging you to use the model that they trained on your data. And does that seem fair to you? And my students were like, well, they're providing a service. I'm like, yeah, but you've technically already paid for the service by providing your data. So arguably you are paying for your own, like in a way it's a weird. And they were like, eh, yeah, maybe it's a problem, but it's like, okay, fine guys. <laughs> no, it is, it's it is. It's sort of like the, the business case for responsible AI is another concept that comes up because oftentimes, you know, how people think of like you know there's a most of us and often because we were just like kind of grandfathered into these systems before we knew right like a oh, google is free and so is gmail but it's like it's not really like you've handed them everything they need to like run a billion dollar business on you um and they do it quite well but and some people are like that's fine it's fine like the convenience the benefit etc is like worth it to me and then of course you have privacy-minded folks but there's not a good middle right from a convenience standpoint um and i think that translates all over the place like there's similar things right and i don't think we've settled the only thing that i've seen um kind of connect what we end up optimizing against is still profit right um and that's hardly going to be like equitable long term it never has been but like in these kinds of cases right it's like well this if it costs me more to do the right thing, will I, if the law doesn't make me, you know, it's an open question. Um, and tying into something I was saying earlier when I mentioned, you know, like we, we try not to fear monger, we try very much to be encouraging of, you know, here's how you might get started with monitoring for bias and, you know, here's our group of experts, right, to kind of guide you along the way. But it's also repositioning it as like, there's absolutely bias in every single model, some good, some bad, right? It has a statistical notion as well as like a societal one. Um, you have to understand like what it means for a given context and domain. But another way of talking about model bias is model underperformance, right? So you might just say the model is underperforming for this group. And because we live in these profit-driven worlds, it's like, this is an opportunity for you, right? Because if you're under-targeting today, tomorrow, right? You can turn them into customers. And so like, those are some like attempts at making the business case for responsible AI, because it's like, you could be missing out on segments of the people as opposed to 
you're biased against them. Um, I think I think there's parallels too with like sort of the um, you know use cases that generative AI will be um, applied against. Um, but it's it's kind of scary the pace of innovation. It just reminded me um, you're talking about like chatbots and stuff. I think um, you know the headlines that are scariest to me are things like where people have gone overnight and quickly sort of dismissed human workforces and used chatbots to give advice on things like mental health issues um, and so on and so forth. And they very quickly devolve and we've seen them very quickly devolve every single time. And yet, you know, companies are still kind of attempting that. Um, I would love to see more pressure from regulation specifically in those kinds of um, tasks for whatever reason, like mental health is certainly healthcare, but like it does sit in kind of a more nebulous space and sort of how we treat it. And we're like more than happy to apply technology to it um in in less maybe scrutinized ways and and that's kind of that's scary for me because i think you know these chatbots like that's they're not so good yet yeah yeah i think again when we were talking before you were talking before about irresponsible i think it's very irresponsible to have um a chatbot on answering mental health questions because again that's if you take it into the sentience and that's giving a chatbot the the thought that they can have some kind of emotional intelligence to answer such kind of uh questions if someone's putting you know some serious mental health um thoughts towards them so yeah definitely irresponsible but um i guess just conscious of time and i was thinking that maybe before we close out just to end maybe on a positive note and uh ask you what kind of of the progress or opportunities you see in this space um for our, for our audience, where you, where you kind of see the most progress happening and what kind of opportunities you see um, see there? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, so far, <laughs> this will be a little bit abstract. Um, the most progress that I'm seeing is just, it. Um, you know, because we sit where our job is to like, have conversations with people who want to leverage this technology for a given use case, it's just seeing the creativity as well. Um, how people want to kind of apply it to any given thing, the sort of benefits they see in front of them. Um, there's a lot of conversation on potential, potential benefits, even under sort of the umbrella of productivity, um, but especially in the kind of the creation space. Um, so I think the biggest progress I'm seeing there is just how it still is inspiring. I'm trying to focus on the human element of it, um, how it's inspiring humans to think about how they might um, find their own benefit or bring that benefit to their life. And so I think, um, you know, ask me again in just like six weeks, who knows what my answer will be because it is that quick developing. But, um, I think, yeah, that, that part's exciting as well as, um, you know, outside of the commercial space, um, just that it is available. Certainly there are risks there kind of, you know, when you have any person on the street able to kind of log in, but nonetheless, um, I think given its accessibility, minus that it's been unleashed for the public to find issues um it's really been cool to kind of see i don't think we have you know technology a lot of people kind of point to like that you know the phone the cell phone kind of um coming into existence is the last time we've ever felt such a like broad um revolution and sort of access and so i think this is it's it's um it's a good thing i think to at the very least to have more people familiar with ai um or machine learning rather is the term i prefer um you know, because I always tell people, like, despite how maybe inaccessible the field um, seems or might seem to you, if a model is good enough to make a decision for you, you are certainly good enough to make a decision for a model and you have a place in the conversation. And as someone affected by models, uh, your voice should very much be um, in the discussion on sort of how 
we manage, you know, these risks and how do we talk about the opportunities and, you know, where you want them and where you see them. So uh, on that front, I think there is a bit of like a community heightening and sort of like everyone kind of has some sort of story with it. And I think, I think that's nice. Like bringing more people into the discussion, I think is the biggest progress I've seen. Yeah, it's a good, empowering way to to end the conversation. I try. Um, <laughs> so thank you so, so much. It's been super interesting. And thanks for sharing with us um, all the advances that uh, we can see and um, to find a fellow skeptic about the <laughs> doom and gloom. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's good to hear um, yeah, everything you've been working on at Arthur as well. And um, I think for me personally, it's exciting to see you know, companies like Arthur and uh, kind of a landscape of companies out there that are really working on responsible AI and, um, you know, actually making, I think, waves in this space and combating the risks and doing the governance side as definitely. well. So, yeah, thank you for all the work you're doing and it's been great. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, the feeling is mutual. Thanks so much for having me. It was lovely to chat with you both. So thanks so much for tuning in. And as always, you can follow us on Let's Chat Ethics on Twitter. And Let's Chat Ethics on LinkedIn, let's.chat.ethics on Instagram. And also you can drop us a line if you have any feedback, questions, or anything at all at letschatethics.gmail.com. And also our Twitter DMs are always open for feedback as well as LinkedIn too. So we look forward to hearing from you.